We'll hear argument now, number 96, 1487, United States v. Josep Krikor Bajikajian. Uh, Mr. Gornstein. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Respondent was about to board a flight to Syria when a customs inspector informed him that he was required to file a currency report if he was taking more than $10,000 with him. Respondent claimed that he was taking less than $10,000, and he therefore did not file a currency report. Customs inspectors searched respondent and his possessions and found more than $350,000 in cash. Respondent subsequently pleaded guilty to willfully failing to file a currency report as he was about to transport more than $350,000 outside this country. For that offense, Congress has mandated forfeiture of the unreported currency. The Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit held, however, that the forfeiture of any of that currency would constitute an excessive fine. We believe the Court of Appeals erred for two reasons. First, the unreported currency is an instrumentality of a reporting offense and may be forfeited as such without violating the excessive fines clause. And second, even if it is not an instrumentality, its forfeiture is a permissible punishment for what is a serious criminal offense. On your, on your first argument, if it's an instrumentality of the crime, and, and we agree with you on that, does that mean the excessive fines analysis is just inapplicable or that it is presumptively non, not excessive? It is satisfied. That is, that it is, not ex- it is a way of showing that the fine is not excessive because the forfeiture of property that is involved in the offense is an inherently proportional proportionate sanction. In other words, the excessive fines clause analysis applies in either event. It does. But the, the manner of satisfying the excessive fines clause is by showing that it is property that seized. One way of satisfying it, it is showing that the property that is seized is in fact an instrumentality of the offense, and there, uh, questions may arise about whether it has a sufficiently close connection to the offense to be classified properly as an instrumentality. Well, but once it is, then that would satisfy the excessive fines clause. Well, if, if we have to ask about excessiveness anyway, I'm just wondering why we have to go through the, the additional step of elaborating a big jurisprudence on what is an instrumentality and, and what isn't. Well, histor- if historic. In any event, we're going to talk about proportionality. We, maybe we should, no, we I, could just save ourselves a step. Well, there are just two different ways of talking about proportionality, Justice Kennedy. Proportionality is in, it is inherently proportionate once it's an instrumentality. No further inquiry into culpability or to the value of the property is ever necessary once there is a showing that this is in fact an instrumentality. Well, of you the said it's presumptively proportional. No, I, I'm saying that it is. I, I'm sorry if, I, if we, we, we had a misunderstanding on that, but generally speaking, if, the, if it is an instrumentality, then it is per se non-excessive, and I would accept from that one small category of cases where perhaps the property is involved in what might be a minor infraction, such as a parking violation. But if it is the kind of violations that property have historically been forfeited for, for customs violations, for criminal offenses, then if it is an instrumentality in the offense, then it is per se a proportionate fine and not an excessive one. It seems a little odd, though, to equate excessiveness uh, with just instrumentality as opposed to some examination of gross proportionality, well, I lack think thereof. I mean, the, the mere term excessiveness seems to import some notion of proportionality to me. Well, I think the question is excessive in relation to what? 
Yes. Uh, that's right. And here I think that when something... Maybe pro- in relation to the criminal fine that could be imposed or something like that, that might be easy to look at. But, but I think that historically it was that if, as long as it was in relationship to the offense, that the, the, the property was used in the offense, the seizure was not an excessive fine because it has always been the case that this has been viewed as a reasonable way, seizure of property involved in the offense, a reasonable and effective way to encourage the owners of property to make sure that their property does not become involved in the offense. It is not excessive in that sense. It is perfectly commensurate with that goal. Because <laughs> well, it is I guess always this court has never really um, articulated the test. It has not. In, in, in the two cases that this court has had previously on the excessive fines clause, simply said that forfeiture was a fine, but in neither case did the court set out the methodology for defi- deciding whether the fine would be excessive. Now, our view is that there are really two, uh, two ways to do it. First, if it's an instrumentality, then it's not excessive without more. But second, if it isn't an instrumentality, then you would engage in the sort of inquiry that you would generally engage in if you had a monetary fine. Well, what is the conclusion that you, you seek to help us to by saying that it's an instrumentality? I mean, we, we, we have a purpose for these classifications. Well, why is it that we're asking about an instrumentality in order to show the close connection of, of the property to the crime itself? I mean, is, is that the... Is, is that the uh, object of the inquiry? Yes, the instrumentality is really just a shorthand expression for the kind of property that has historically been subject to forfeiture in REM because of the significant involvement of the property in the offense. Oh, this is not an in REM forfeiture in here, is it? It's <laughs> not an in REM forfeiture, but the, the criminal provision here in, in addressing the kind of, of property that is subject to f- forfeiture singled out only property that is involved in the offense. Right. And that is the shorthand expression for the kind of property that has historically been subject to in-rem forfeiture. And we think by using that language, Congress manifested its intent to further the general remedial goals that have always been associated with in-rem forfeiture. Well, that is in, in that connection, I'm, I'm a little confused. What, what is the difference between the criminal forfeiture and the civil in-rem? Because I had been, I guess, under the false impression that for civil forfeiture, it could be an excessive fine to take the whole thing. I thought that was what Austin implied. I think that the only thing that Austin held was that it was a fine, and then it did not decide how you would decide whether a fine was or was not excessive. Now, the property that was seized in in, in Austin itself may have been so incidentally involved in the offense that it couldn't properly be characterized as an instrumentality of the offense. And if not, it, it could not be forfeited on an instrumentality theory. Can you explain the difference? Is there any, any significant difference between the in personam criminal and the in rem civil for this purpose of judging the proportionality or the, um, how much can be forfeited without being too much? For purposes of our first argument, that is, whether it is an instrumentality, there is no difference. No for, the, difference. for the purpose of our second argument, if you disagree with us on the first one, there is a difference because the criminal um, forfeiture embodies the additional purpose of punishing the criminal defendant, whereas to the extent that punishment is involved in civil and REM, it is punishment only of the owner. Now here, the criminal defendant can be both the criminal defendant and the owner, but, and he can be punished in both ways in a criminal proceeding. But in a civil and REM proceeding, the only person that is being punished, if anyone is being punished, is the owner of the property. 
Mr. But as Gorenstein. far as your instrumentality, it's, it's it, it identical. It would be the same exact analysis. Mr. Gorenstein, uh, do the old cases on, on forfeiture of um, undutied cargoes refer to the forfeited goods as being instrumentalities, or have we simply applied that term as a term of art? The latter. The latter. Okay. When did that develop? I mean, it's an odd usage, and I'd just like to understand yeah. why we and, do and that. I, I'm, I, I wish I had a full explanation for this, but I would say one of the sources of it was Justice Scalia's concurring opinion in Austin, and I think a lot of the courts of the, which used the phrase instrumentality to describe quite property recent, that... Quite that, recent. That, quite recent, yeah, that used the phrase in, in instrumentality to describe the kind of property that um, has a sufficiently co close connection to the offense and that to historically be subject to forfeiture. You're, you're, I'm sorry. A lot of the Court of Appeals that have struggled with this question since then have picked up on that phrase. And well, we, going back to Justice Kennedy's question, we could simply stop using the word instrumentality here and, and consider the argument that the analogy is so close between the undisclosed currency here and the undutied property in the old in-rem cases that that would be the basis for your... your you, you absolutely could. ...getting into this metaphysics. You do not have to get into a, an elaborate discussion of what is and is not an instrumentality in this case. You can decide this case based on its uh, relationship to the early customs cases. And in the early customs cases, property was brought into the country without declaration. It was subject to forfeiture. That, that isn't quite... I mean, the underlying issue, I think, which is possibly a point of agreement or disagreement with Judge Wallace... Uh, is that that uh, uh, your your view is, if something is an instrumentality, no matter how valuable, it is forfeitable if it's involved in a crime, no matter how trivial, with the exception of parking offenses. That, all right. So that that means that the Constitution would permit, in your view, uh, the Taj Mahal, for example, to be forfeited if it was once used to sell a teaspoonful of, uh, of uh, marijuana or something like that? I, I think not, because, again, that's a, that historically has not been a way in which forfeiture law has been ah, used. Ah, well, now, 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 wait, then that's interesting, because that's what I'm trying to drive at. I thought your initial view was what I said, and now you have a limitation on that initial view, and you say it only applies where? Well, I think in your example, that would, the question would be whether that was an instrumentality. Of oh, no, no, I'm assuming it was. No, but I'm, what I'm saying is that's the inquiry, and what I would say is in that case, the relationship of the property to the, the offense is so minor and incidental that it was never... All right, let, let me make an example with the hypothetical where it is not minor and incidental. People are called to the Taj Mahal deliberately in order to sell them the teaspoon of marijuana. You know, it's easy to do that, and I'm trying to get at the underlying point. Is the underlying point correct without limitation? No matter how valuable the property, it is forfeitable if used to commit a crime, no matter how trivial. And my difficulty, of course, if it's without limitation, is how one would reconcile that with the excessive, what seems to be a prohibition of excessive fine. And, and I think that the, if you start with the history of the early customs statutes... Do I have it right with your position? Well, well I, with the provisos that I've said, that there are two inquiries that have to be made. The first is that it is sufficiently involved in the offense to be treated as an instrumentality. And if you're running a business out of the Taj Mahal, yes, that certainly could be forfeited. If there's one transaction that takes place there, even on a single day, maybe or maybe not. But at some point, yes, if you're running a business out of the Taj Mahal and selling drugs out of there, that would be an instrumentality and could be forfeited as such. Now, the reason that there are two powerful reasons, it seems to us, why instrumentality forfeitures satisfy the excessive fines clause, and the first is history. If you look at the early 
forfeiture laws, they for, required forfeiture of goods brought into this country without declaration, regardless of how valuable those goods were. It could have been priceless jewelry or ordinary gems. If those goods were brought into the country without declaration, they were subject to forfeiture as such. This is the very same first Congress that proposed the excessive fines clause. So I think we have to start with the understanding that that Congress did not view that kind of uh, uh, forfeiture is excessive. We know from Austin that the Congress viewed it as a fine. So the only thing that we can understand from that Congress's action that they, is that they must have thought that that kind of forfeiture was not excessive because of the relationship of the property in the offense. The argument made against that is that uh, in the case of uh, goods brought into the country illegally in that, in, in that manner, it's not only an instrumentality of the crime, the goods themselves are contraband. Well, they, 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 they have no business being in the country. They are unlawfully here. You could distinguish those cases on that, on that basis, couldn't you? Justice Scalia, I don't think that is a fair characterization because contraband, as we understand it, is something that is unlawful to possess. The goods that were being brought um, into the country to sell were perfectly legal to sell as long as the appropriate duties were paid on them. And it, the fact but that it the duties... Well, not, but here it is, it's perfectly legal to take money out of the country and transport it out in the country, but only as long as you make the report. And so it has the exact same relationship to the offense as the traditional, the, the goods in a customs offense. Well, why don't you use the term contraband rather than instrumentality then? Justice Stevens, I would, be happy, I would be happy if it, to decide this case. You'll take if you it want to use the sure. word contraband to describe this kind of property, yes. that is fine with us. No, but I'm just wondering why you didn't argue it in those terms. That the reason that we did not argue it in that, those terms is that we, to re, we understood the term contraband to mean property that is unlawful to possess. Like, like drugs. Or like drugs. That, that's right. That, that are that sort of uniformly, with rare exceptions, unlawful to possess. Not property that is legitimate to possess, but is used in the commission of the offense. Now, I say, having said that, this is a peculiar kind of property, uh, uh, instrumentality, that looks like an, a contraband and could be called the corpus of the offense. And if you want to decide the case on that basis by saying you can always forfeit the corpus of the offense... We, I don't that, think we, we need another phrase. <laughs> but, Mr. Gorsley, yes. maybe we need two, because, because I take it, your, on your theory... Nothing rides on whether these are ill-gotten gains that is not possessed lawfully and are going to be devoted to an unlawful purpose, money laundering, and whether, as at least we must take this case, the possessor had a lawful right to possess and was going to use the money toward lawful ends. So do I understand your position right that for purposes of the amount of the forfeiture and excessive fines, it doesn't make any difference whether um, the, the funds were possessed totally lawfully or they were indeed ill-gotten gains. That's correct. As long as they were used in the commission of this offense, they are subject to forfeiture and it's not excessive in the same way that property imported into this country that is uh, lawfully possessed and intended for a lawful purpose to sell it is so also subject ask, to then, forfeiture. Then in, that, in that line that you, you've been candid about it, that it doesn't matter that it's that the money is possessed legally, the, the crime is the failure to report. The hypothetical that I think was given in one of the briefs is suppose Congress decided to say that failure to report income, that the consequence of that will not be just the ordinary fines that, that are now in place, but 
that for failure to report, you forfeit whatever amount you fail to report. Yes, we, we view that question as not being one of, we view the earned income as not being instrumentality of that offense. There's no, there has been no historical tradition of treating earned income as a fa- uh, 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 instrumentality as a fa- of a failure to file an income tax return, and the relationship is different. Yeah, but what's the, the historical precedent for treating uh, undisclosed money uh, as, as in the same way that... Well, it, it is the very property that moves across the border without proper declaration. Yeah, but your, your criterion in response to Justice Ginsburg uh, was historical tradition, and there's no historical tradition of drawing the analogy that you want us to draw. Well, I, in addition to there being no historical tradition, though, the relationship to the offense in that case is different because earning income is a condition of having a duty to report, but the money is not physically used in the commission of the offense yeah, but as the it government, is here. But the government's interest is even stronger uh, because the government's interest is not only an interest in having reports, it's an interest in, in collecting uh, taxes. And that's right, and that's why it may, not, may or may not be an excessive fine based on the value of the fine as against the gravity of the offense. You would turn to that analysis. We're not saying that if there's not a property is not an instrumentality, it can't be forfeited. No, but if instrumentality refer, is, is to be determined on the basis of some kind of sufficient relationship to the crime, then I would suppose there was a pretty good argument for treating the undisclosed income as an instrumentality. You can't commit the crime unless you have the income, uh, and, and therefore it's hard for me to, to understand uh, why, uh, if, if you're going to treat the, the undisclosed exported money as an instrumentality without the benefit of a historical example, and you're going to treat, uh, and, you're, and you're going to define instrumentality as this close relationship, it's hard to see why you don't fall, it seems to me, into exactly the position that Justice Ginsburg suggests, that if we take your position, then we are, in fact, opening the door uh, to exactly the total forfeiture of any undisclosed income subject to tax. Why, why, why will that not be the conclusion? Justice Souter, the historical analogy is much more complete in the case of currency. And the reason is that what the currency is doing it is being physically transported across the border without declaration. It is actually physically, the money is there and it is being moved, and that is part of the offense of transporting money outside this country without proper de- declaration, just like the traditional customs law. But isn't it possible the report could be made the, the day after they arrived abroad? It is, but the, effe- the, then the, offense. the offense is still, part, part of the offense is physically transporting the money across but the border. What country. I'm saying is the, every transportation of money across the border without reporting does not necessarily violate the statute if within 24 hours or so he files a report. Actually, it, it, on the receiving end, that would be true. On the, on the on the export well, end, you have, to, you have to file the report. Either way, the, if, if, it, but, if, if it doesn't have to be absolutely simultaneous, I'm not sure your analogy follows. I, I, it, it, it seems to me that it, the analogy is still complete because the money itself is part of the offense is physically moving the money across the border. And the money is immediately and directly involved in the offense in the way that earned income is not, which is just earned over a period of time in a cal- and then in a calendar year, you report on your but income the tax. But you've got to re- make your report on such and such a day whenever the return is due. What if this statute said you've got to make your report on the same day you file your income tax return? I, 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 don't, think that, I don't think that that makes the difference. That, that I don't think that makes the difference. And, part, and, and one of the, uh, to go back to a question about that this does not apply even when 
it is legitimate, found to be legitimate and intended for a, a, a lawful purpose. The reason that Congress imposed very serious penalties despite that is that there are many, many cases in which it is impossible for the government to know at the moment of seizure whether or not property is intended for particular unlawful purposes like tax evasion, for like uh, money laundering, like large-scale drug dealing. And if it were the case that persons bent on those purposes knew that unless the government knew at the moment of seizure that they were planning to export the, that money for those purposes, they would ha- that, that their money would be free and clear. They would have far less incentive to, to comply with the reporting requirements in the first place, and that would resurrect the very state of affairs that Congress faced when it enacted this well, law. Well, Mr. Gornstein, suppose we don't share your enthusiasm for the instrumentality approach, and suppose that we're more interested in proportionality, then what factors should guide us? The, this court has set out in, in two areas the kind of approach that it, it uses when, to measure excessiveness in both the area of punitive damages and the area of cruel and unusual punishment. And the, the guiding factors, it seems to us, can be drawn from those opinions. But first of all, you would have to say that the offense has to be, in terms of value, the, I'm sorry, the penalty in terms of value, has to be grossly disproportionate to the gravity of the offense. Second, you would always have to give deference. Well, here, let's talk about it in terms of specifics. Here, the maximum fine was, what, 250000 It was. And the total amount seized was 300-some thousand? 350-plus. And you'd say that was proportional? It, it certainly is proportional, but I, I think that, Justice O'Connor, it's, it's certainly one barometer of proportionality to look to the fine that's imposed, but it's not the only one or even the most important one. We would suggest that in measuring the seriousness of offense, you look first to the measure that this court has always used as the, the best indicator of how seriously Congress regards an offense, and that's the maximum period of incarceration, which here is five years imprisonment without any aggravating factors at all, and it's 10 years imprisonment if the money is involved in other offenses. And from that, you know that Congress regarded this as a very serious offense. And when in, you, in a way, it's delightfully proportional, isn't it? What, what, what is the minimum? 10,000? Is, is, is that where it starts? It does. So if you, if you take out just 10,000, that, uh, that's surely less of an offense than taking out 300,000. And if you take out only 10, it's a relatively small offense. You forfeit only 10. If you take out 300,000, you forfeit 300,000. In, in that case, in that sense, this law has a, 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 feature, a, a, a feature of almost perfect proportionality in that sense. I, I, am, I am concerned about this, though. Uh, you're, you're appealing in, in your, your argument on instrumentality uh, to a doctrine which focuses on the use of the uh, money in the offense. But in fact, uh, what if this money didn't belong to this individual? What if it belonged to somebody else? It could not be forfeited in a criminal proceeding, but it could be forfeited in a civil civil in rem proceeding. You go back to proportionality for a second. Well, but I get, can I just finish? I mean, I'm, we're talking about the criminal one here, right? It, it could not be forfeited. You can only forfeit the defendant's property in but, a criminal but proceeding. Is it not possible that the government has to be logical that if it is indeed? Imposing the kind of a penalty that it did in uh, in customs violations, if it's if it's using moving against the instrumentality, so to speak, it has to move against the instrumentality, no matter whom it belongs to. But what it says in this statute is, if it belongs to the person who's taking it out of the country, 
we're going to move against it, but if it doesn't belong to him, we're not going to move, it, move against it. Now, might there not be some requirement that it, that it be using that, uh, that mode of, uh, of, of punishment, moving against the property? Justice and it is not really doing that here. Justice Scalia, I don't see what in the Constitution would require um, Congress to do that. It, it, it seems to me it makes no sense constitutionally to say, if we had convicted this defendant and then filed an in-rem proceeding, it would be per se non-excessive to take the property. But if we add it as a feature of a sentence in which the defendant is the property owner and we've taken it from him, that it's somehow possibly an excessive fine. That Congress can try to accomplish more than one aim at a time. It can try to punish a criminal defendant and at the same time serve the, long, the general goals of in-rem forfeiture yeah, in that ask, proceeding. Uh, does culpability have anything to do with it? There's two parts to that question. One, is it relevant at all that this fellow told a number of falsehoods? Secondly, is it relative at all, relevant at all, that the money was acquired lawfully and not being laundered or anything like that? Are those two facts relevant or not? Those two facts are not relevant. Uh, and because what you're looking at... Justice Stevens, there is always the possibility that you would disagree with us that the, the, the offense itself was what you, what you looked at, which is what we think is the proper analysis. Oh, but in that, sorry, you're finished, please. I'm, and, and so it would, it, we went on then to address the particulars of this case on the theory that we've lost our first argument that you don't look at those things. On proportionality, just to follow up on this very question, the kinds of things that I used to look at, the Sentencing Commission and so forth, uh, first you would look at the conduct, and for the worst conduct you'd get a higher sentence. And the second thing that you'd look at would be the harm done. And the more the harm done, the higher the sentence. So $10,000 to 350000 is proportionate if and only if the 350000 means more harm than the 10000 And the argument that it doesn't is it doesn't here because what Congress is trying to stop is money laundering, drugs, a whole host of unlawful things. And here the judge agrees it has nothing to do with it. So there was no, what his argument is that there's no harm in this case that's proportionate. And the culpability, of course, is the same whether you're taking the 10 or the 350. Now, that's, that, I think, is the argument this is disproportionate, so I'd like you to address it. Well, there's, there's two points to that. The, the first is that the money is still dangerous. There is a danger. Yes, of course it is, but it's not, three, is it 30, 350 or 35 times as dangerous? I think that what... Why, if it's just going to somebody in Ar Armenia who happened to lend him some money? No, I, what I'm saying is that at the moment of seizure, Congress has said, we realize that you're not going to know for sure where this money is headed for. We're going to treat it all as if it's dangerous. And then the only place where Congress said, okay, if it's shown to involve in other offenses, we're going to take account of that, is by increasing the maximum authorized sentence from five years to 10 years. So up to five years imprisonment, a mandatory forfeiture, $250,000 fine. Congress said all of this money that is unreported and is more than $10,000, this is dangerous money. We have a dangerous situation on our hand, and we cannot be sure that at the moment of seizure, anybody is going to know about that. And in order to get the right level of deterrence, we are going to have mandatory forfeiture. Everybody is going to have to report, and if you do not, regardless of what your purposes are, and if, every, if you do not report, the money is going to be forfeited. Mr. Gernstein, I, I had always thought that, that, that we, we approached this question of excessive fines on the basis of the statute and not the particulars of the individual case. Let's say a statute that provides for a fine of anywhere from ten dollars to $500,000. Uh, is it your understanding that we would look at the individual case and the individual fine actually assessed 
and see how wicked was the person against whom the fine was assessed? Did he lie? Did he do this, that, or the other thing? Can it be a judge just by looking at the statute? Yes, just, Justice Scalia, our position is that you do just look at it by the statute. And that, that's the, Harmling basically stands for that proposition, that Congress does not have to individualize sentences in that way. Thank you, Mr. Kornstein. Mr. Blatt, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case, a criminal in persona matter, is here because a district court determined that forfeiture of $357,144 would be grossly disproportionate under the Eighth Amendment for a failure to declare offense. The decision was based on the following factual findings by the district court, that the money involved was lawful money for a lawful purpose, that the crime was committed in reference to cultural differences, and that the lies that Mr. Bajikasian stated grew out of fear. Mr. Bajikasian was sentenced with these factors. Could you explain? I don't really understand the finding that the crime was committed because of cultural differences. What happened in this matter, Mr. Chief Justice, is that my client, Mr. Bajikasian, is from Syria. He was a minority there, an Armenian. And when he grew up, he was very frightened and afraid of the government in reference to monies taken in and out. When he left this country to pay a lawful debt, and he was going to Cyprus, not to, not to Syria, he thought that he would be harmed or the money might be taken from him if he showed how much money he had. We indicated that to the district court. The district court took that into consideration and took also into consideration the lies that he made, which were primarily out of fear, when it came up with a grossly disproportionate analysis. So if one lies out of fear, it's not the same thing as lying for some other motive? Yes, Your Honor. It's a factor that has to be considered in reference to whether the money was lawful and for a lawful purpose because it relates to the culpability. If one lies not, uh, if one lies because he or she is not involved in a criminal enterprise, but because they are frightened, and we're not trying to excuse the culpability of Mr. Bajikashian, it is a factor for a court to consider in reference to punishment. You think the Constitution excessive fines clause has to be applied on a case-by-case basis? Each individual case, no matter how the statute reads, and even if the statute has been approved in a prior case, it's only been approved as to that defendant under the facts of that case. And every single case involves, necessarily involves courts into the constitutional inquiry of whether given this, uh, this uh, defendant's culture, given all the other circumstances of the offense, this is excessive. Uh, Justice Scalia, I, I believe that... It's a lot of trouble. I, I don't know courts can handle that kind of a burden. I, I thought it, it's just done on the face of the statute. I think they can handle that burden, Justice Scalia, because when we're talking about the Eighth Amendment and punishment, it's the district court's responsibility to weigh culpability and value. So every district judge uh, can come up with a different uh, different conclusion, I suppose, if, if each one uh, just, weigh. I think this is excessive, this isn't excessive. Well, Justice Scalia, I think that's always a possibility. Yes, district courts can come up with different determinations. And is the standard abuse of discretion? Yes, it is, Your Honor. Abuse of discretion to, deter- to determine reference- what the meaning of excessiveness is under the Constitution? That's, yes. That's a very strange document, it seems to me. Well, when we're t- Your Honor, um, when we're talking is, about... Are, are, are there any other constitutional provisions that are <coughs> entrusted to the interpretation of the district courts under an abuse of discretion standard that you can think of? In reference to statutory and constitutionally, no, Your Honor. But in reference to when we're evaluating this on a proportionality analysis under Austin and Alexander... This court made a determination that the Eighth Amendment applies in reference to forfeitures. By the nature of the word excessive, it implies a proportionality or a comparison analysis, Your Honor. 
And in order to do that type of comparison, a judge, a district court judge, would have to make a determination about culpability. This was lawful money for a lawful purpose. There was no criminal enterprise involved here. What, what about a statute that says uh, anyone who uses a, an unlawfully possessed firearm in the commission of a crime uh, shall forfeit the firearm? Is, can, you, can you say in the abstract whether that's constitutional or not? I believe that, uh, Your Honor, that would be entirely constitutional for the following reason. What? That firearm is contraband. It's an illegal weapon. It's used in the furtherance of a crime. This uh, money was not contraband. You acknowledge the existence of that doctrine, then, that uh, your, your, your quarrel here is just that it is not a contraband or instrumentality, whatever, whatever else you want to call it. I acknowledge that, Your Honor, that contraband and proceeds of contraband uh, are forfeitable. But this is an instrument, allegedly an instrumentality of a crime, a means by which a crime is committed. You think failure to register a firearm is any different from failure to, 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 to notify the government that you're carrying currency? Under the statute it is, Your Honor, because the statute indicates that it's not contraband to have the money and to transport the money outside of the country. Okay, but if, well, if it is contraband, you, you acknowledge it doesn't matter how much it's worth. Correct. I could have used, uh, you know, a, a 12th century uh, uh, valuable firearm, if there were any in the 12th century. Correct, Your Honor. If this money was from uh, launder, uh, laundered money, if it was involved in some type of criminal enterprise, yeah. or if it was money that was going out of the country not to pay taxes, to avoid payment of taxes, then it would be tainted money an instrumentality. Well, but what if under Justice Scalia's hypothesis, the defendant in the firearm case uh, took the stand and said, well, uh, in, in my country, it's perfectly legal to, to have a firearm. So I did it kind of for cultural reasons. Well, it depends on whether it was lawful or not. Uh, I, I think that's one factor that has to be considered, Mr. Chief Justice, and you had to look at the total context or totality of the circumstances. This was an unusual case. It is never easy at the district level to prove that, in reference to a forfeiture, that it's lawful money for a lawful purpose. And in the way we did that, we showed the cultural aspects, the man's intent, and the district court made a factual determination in reference to this, that this was lawful money, and he made a factual determination as to reasons did that he, he make, lied. Did he really make that determination, or did he decide he, it had not been proved that it was unlawful? No, Your Honor. He made a determination. But there was some ambiguity about the well, whole story. Well, when they got the, amb through. the ambiguity laid with the government's position that they couldn't really prove or disprove certain facts. But the district judge indicated that this was lawful money for a lawful person, for a lawful purpose, and that much has been proven. Did that he prove that taxes had been paid on it? The taxes had been paid on it, Your Honor. Yeah. Yes. Can you go back for a second? Because I'm now concerned. Uh, Mr. Ornstein answered me, and Justice Scalia picked up a point that I had not focused on, which is that this is a mandatory forfeiture statute. It says the defendant shall forfeit. Now, I can understand a statute that says the, the convicted person in a case of robbery must pay a p penalty up to $5 million as well as prison. And then a person takes $1 and the judge imposes $5 million and you say, well, that's way disproportionate. But the statute said may. And I think his point is here that the statute says shall. And so what Congress is saying here is you shall, you have to, the judge has no discretion. And where the judge has no discretion, you would look to see whether Congress is being reasonable in writing that statute shall and not looking to those factors. Is there, does that trigger anything in your mind, any instance where despite this kind of mandatory statutory provision, the courts nonetheless looked into the way in which the provision applied to a particular case and said it's unconstitutional 
yes. because of the way it applies here. Does yes. that trigger anything? Yes, it does, Justice Good. Breyer. What is that? Because under Austin Alexander, mm-hmm. this court indicated that the Eighth Amendment in reference to uh, excessive fine does apply. On the remand of Alexander, yeah. uh, when, when that case was decided, there was a breakdown by Alexander using the Busher Ninth Circuit standards of what proportionality should be. And they looked at the value of the crime. Yes, but was that a case in which the, the, the fine that was imposed, or the four, I don't know if it's a fine, was mandatory under the statute? Yes, it was. It was. So they had to impose it. So they did went well, One of the problems in the government's position is that they indicate that the Eighth Amendment does apply. However, they go on to state that, it can, that the particular liquidated damage forfeiture can never be grossly disproportionate. It doesn't matter whether it's $10,001 or $3 million. It's always going to be the same, no matter, about, no matter in reference to culpability and value. Well, isn't that the case with respect to the importation of, uh, of, of goods to the country without paying customs duties? In one lot emerald, you're Bring on. in the moonstone, or don't you forfeit the moonstone? You forfeit the moonstone... Assuming you buy the Moonstone legally, Your Honor, and you fail to report it and then fail to pay the duty, pursuant to the statute, once you fail to pay the duty, it becomes contraband, and that property becomes tainted. We don't have that situation here. All right, but so long as you make that limitation upon your argument, there's nothing wrong about forfeiting uh, something that's worth an enormous value, so long as it's done within the historical context of something that is called contraband or instrumentality, whatever. That is correct, Your Honor. If it's contraband or proceeds from contraband or if it fits into the historical standard. uh, But why is it that a metaphysical label then changes whether or not, in fact, it's excessive? I would agree with you, Your Honor, in that because the legal fiction... Well, then then I think you have to answer Justice Scalia that you cannot necessarily forfeit the moonstone. We get the moonstone back now. I like that moonstone, but I I see what you're saying, Your Honor. when we're, I think the, the problem is, is how we evaluate an instrumentality. An instrumentality is a means by which we have property divided in three areas, contraband, proceeds of contraband, and an instrumentality. And contraband and proceeds of contraband have always been a strong remedial interest and have been forfeited. Instrumentality, there has to be a, a connection. In this particular case, and I would agree from a common practical sense point of view, we're splitting hairs. When we're talking about an instrumentality, should it really relate to a substantial connection? I believe there should be some type of cutoff point in reference to instrumentality. But the historical legal fiction doesn't really fit anymore. In, in other words, it's, we now look under, under modern times that the, the, in reference to the property as to the use of the property. And not, in, not purely in relation to its respect as how it was used during piracy times. I think the key issue in this matter is whether the district court used the appropriate standard of grossly disproportionate when it forfeited approximately $15,000. Mr. Black, well, and I mistook your position. I thought your position was if the money is clean, then any forfeiture was excessive and you don't get into the proportionality. I, I thought that's what your first position was. No, that if my, nothing is involved other than failure to report. No, my, excuse me, Justice Ginsburg. I'm, the first, uh, in reference to the instrumentality argument, I was arguing that it really wasn't an instrumentality. It is a crime of, of omission. It was not contraband. It doesn't fit under the traditional historical standard of what an instrumentality is. Well, it's a crime of omission when one fails to declare the, the, uh, the, the uh, imported goods and pay the duty. 
Yes, but uh, and and there is a. I, I don't think the labels matter, but there is a sense in which the word contraband is used to to describe the undutied goods. Uh, why isn't that analogy just as good uh, when when the person taking currency out fails to declare it? Uh, Justice Souter, the reason it's not as good is, be, is because on one lot emerald you had to pay a duty. Once you did not pay that duty, by statute it became contraband. But why should that? Why should that be the point of distinction? The concern, uh, there is a general concern with undutied goods, and that is they come into the country at a competitive advantage. Uh, uh, Quite apart from the government's loss of revenue, uh, they they tend to compete uh, with with products within the country, uh, and therefore one of the objects of a duty is to try to even those odds. In this case, the government's concern uh, with exporting unreported funds is if one is allowed to do that, it tends to facilitate tax evasion, uh, skimming of illegal profits, and so on. In each case, there is a social, social ill, which is one of the objects uh, of declaring or declaring and, and taxing these goods. Uh, why isn't the social object uh, that, that underlies the money reporting requirement sufficient to support the analogy between that and the undutied goods. Why should the fact of the tax be crucial? I think the court is correct. That that in reference to splitting hairs in this matter, if we're going to evaluate it, there is a strong remedial interest, and we've never denied this in our brief, that the government should have the opportunity to determine what funds are leaving this country. And that's equally a strong remedial interest in reference to uh, smuggled goods. The, The problem here is one of semantics. Uh, in reference to an instrumentality, it's not a means by which a crime or contraband was conveyed. Well, this is a means or not a means in the same sense that the undutied goods are means or not a means. That is correct, Your Honor. That is correct. Whatever you call it, it it's, it's in the same relation to the, uh, to the person who owns the goods. Whatever you call it, there's a substantial connection. But where we disagree with the government is that when they see the substantial connection, but for and or an instrumentality, that's where they're... Uh, position ends. If it's an instrumentality, it all must be forfeited. And there's no really proportionality analysis. If it's an instrumentality, we take it all, irregardless of culpability, irregardless of whether the money... So is is it your argument simply that the government may not assume, and this court may not assume, that the undutied goods are per se forfeitable? That is correct. They're all on the same boat, and we've got to go through the same proportionality analysis on the undutied goods that we would, on your theory, on the, on the unreported money. That is correct, Your Honor. In other words, we have the first, first issue as, as to the connection. And once, because this is a forfeiture, because the Eighth Amendment does apply in reference to punishment, there has to be a second analysis as to whether it is grossly disproportionate. All right, now what about the government's argument in one argument in response to that? that if it is, in fact, a, a, a threat of certain social ills uh, to allow the, uh, the export of unreported currency, the more you allow to be exported, the greater the social ill. That is... Uh, so that there is, as Mr. Gorenstein said, uh, in this kind of case, as opposed to the Taj Mahal case, for example, mm-hmm. there really is a kind of inherent proportionality uh, involved in seizure of the entire amount, whatever that amount may be. Your Honor, with all due respect, I don't see an inherent proportionality. This was money that had been earned. I'm likely to be skimming profits. The more money I take out, the more profits I'm likely to be skimming. That is correct, Your Honor, and that goes to culpability. This money wasn't 
uh, received from money laundering or anything illegal, and it was not for an illegal purpose. The examples that you know, don't you think it's worse to sneak out three hundred and fifty thousand dollars than it is to sneak out ten thousand dollars? You think that they are crimes of, of, of equivalent uh, proportion? It depends on the reasoning. If we're talking about punishment, Your Honor, we're talking about... All other factors being equal. Is it, is it not worse to take out $350,000 than it is to take... Like, yes, it is, Your Honor. Approximately 35 times worse. Yes, it is. No, it, it isn't. It is a factor to consider. That is a principle in punishment law I've never seen anywhere, that it is proportionately worse. Well, I mean, every, every, every bit of punishment law I've ever seen suggests that it does increase in culpability, but not proportionately. Well, I, I, that's, at least, maybe your experience is different on that. Well, uh, Justice Breyer, what, what I'm indicating is that it has an effect on the culpability. O obviously, if someone is taking out millions of dollars for an unlawful yes, it's purpose, worse. There's no it's question. It's much worse. It's worse, but, but I have not seen proportionality in respect to punishment proportional it, to the amount of the dollars. What I, meant lot to the contrary. what I meant, Your Honor, was in reference to culpability. If the Eighth Amendment is going to apply, which this Court has indicated that it should, concerning excessive fines, then... Now, if that's so, suppose I accept your argument that, say, in an environmental case, they're not going to forfeit the factory because some, uh, you know, stuff spilled out the pipe intentionally. Because I've, because I've got that far. Assume. Now, suppose we're, we're also because of this Alexander that you cited. It's Alexander, right? Which, yes, what, you're quite right. It said shall forfeit. Now, suppose because of that, we have to look at the application case by case. Still, I'm back to where Justice O'Connor started. It's very hard to believe that all we're going to do is in every single case start looking as to whether there's an abuse of discretion. Is there not some standard that you've come across that could catch the extreme cases that wouldn't involve uh, an analysis case by case, instant by instance, of whether the judge somehow went a little wrong? Or, in your view, do you have to conduct that under the Constitution? How do you, in other words, give what we'd call a margin of appreciation to the judge to make some kind of mistake before the Constitution comes into play? I don't know the answer to that, Your Honor. No? I don't know the answer. Well, what are the standards, that you would say? So here's this 47, whatever it is. You, you have already disabused me of one notion that because they're not ill-gotten gains, the government can't take any of it. So you say the government can take some of it. So how much is too much? How do we know? Well, we, we use the standard, Your Honor, of grossly disproportionate. We look at the value. We look at the culpability. We look at the harm that could be caused in reference to this to the government. Uh, the, once the information was found, there was no harm to the government. They now have the information. Well, where does one, you said we look at this, that, and the other thing. Where does one go to find those guides? We look at the Alexander Remand. We look at Busher. Uh, in, those, in, in, in that particular case, they evaluated the harshness of the penalty in light of the gravity of the offense. They evaluated the, the defendant's culpability. They looked at the dollar volume of the loss, the existence of any benefit to the defendant, which there was none in this particular case. And Are the, you telling me essentially that you think that Judge Wallace, then was it Chief Judge Wallace, got it basically right? Yes, I do, Your Honor. So he used the right factors and... I, I think... I think that Judge Davies, the district court, used the exact factors that were necessary in this matter. He looked at this matter as to whether it was grossly disproportionate. He looked at the lawfulness. Oh, so you, the district judge. And the Judge district Wallace and, and the, didn't, and, because Judge, I think his position was most favorable to yours, but you reject that. Judge Wallace has gave a concurring opinion where he disagreed with the Ninth Circuit expansion 
uh, of this particular area and, and didn't agreed. Did he say the 15,000 he was letting stand because you hadn't challenged it? No, that, that was the district court, Your Honor. The, the Judge Wallace indicated in his, in his concurring opinion that uh, he was allowing the 15,000 because he did not feel it was abuse of discretion and that he agreed with the proportionality analysis. What I'm saying, Your Honor, is that the district court applied the correct standard, grossly disproportionate. It looked at all the factors that I've indicated just now and came up with the decision that the $5,000 fine, it was a $5,000 fine under the guidelines, not $250,000, and probation, that based upon that he was going to add an additional $15,000 for what he considered what a small fine would be under the guidelines and the government expense in this matter. May I ask you a question on your proportionality approach? It seems to me that one of the problems in this area is that uh, it's sort of a prophylactic statute. We're not sure what's going to happen to all this money. And supposing the person violating the statute uh, takes the Fifth Amendment and says, I'm not going to tell you what I do. I have a constitutional right to secrecy. I didn't want, if I'd filed a report, somebody would have found out about it. There are no protections on secrecy. He just isn't going to tell, and the government has no way of finding out. Well, what's your proportionality analysis there? Do you assume he's guilty of something really bad because he won't talk about it, or he's perfectly innocent? I don't really assume either, but he has not met his burden, Your Honor. The defendant, by his failure to report, should have the burden, as it was in this particular case. We had the burden to show that this money was lawful and for a lawful purpose and that it would be not grossly disproportionate. The defendant should have the burden in these matters when he commits a crime and then obtain, tries to obtain the monies in reference to the forfeiture. I'm trying to understand your, your application of gross disproportionality here. In the garden variety case of gross disproportionality, I think one of the things, or one of the principal things that we do, is to compare sentences in individuals. It's hard to do that here, I guess, because we don't we don't have a a, a, a long string of of, uh, of forfeitures to compare it to. Um, are you really saying when you use the gross disproportionality? Uh, criterion, and you then point out the factors that a judge should consider in applying it. Are you really saying that any judge who makes a gross disproportionality analysis and refers to all of the relevant factors as you have listed them should be upheld unless we can say that his determination as such was simply unreasonable or irrational? Is that what gross disproportionality here means? In other words, it's a standard that goes to the care of the judge for relevant considerations as opposed to a standard that goes to real comparisons between this instance, that instance, and the other instance. Yes, that's what I'm saying, Your Honor, because if we're going to look at real comparisons, when you evaluate a forfeiture, it's a matter of comparing the value in reference to what is going to be forfeited to the serious nature or extensive nature of the crime. Well, then, then we could have, you know, we have 700 district judges in the country, and we could have 700 different results, all of them correct under that standard, I suppose. That's a possibility, Your Honor. But, in, in, Mr. Chief Do Justice... Do you think that's desirable? I think it is under this fashion. When we're examining, Your Honor, under a forfeiture statute, it shouldn't be the district, court to con the district court's position to compare what happened in another district involving another factual situation that could be entire entirely different. Each factual situation, because it's punishment and culpability is involved and different values are involved, have to be decided by that district judge. Well, of course, you, you've got a, not only a, a, pro a prohibition against excessive fines, but a prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. 
Uh, could this be imported into the sentencing phase of criminal cases and say, you know, whatever Congress says, each, each district judge has just got to figure out what the right punishment is to make sure that it isn't cruel and unusual? Well, excessive fines have been distinguished significantly from cruel and unusual punishment, Your Honor. Uh, and the infer- frankly, I-, I feel that the district court can make that decision. Yes, there's going to be differences, but that district court has all those particular facts in that particular case, and they would be best able to make that determination as to whether a fine is excessive. So you do reject the, I, I'm sorry I got the judges mixed up. The Ninth Circuit majority said no forfeiture at all here because these were lawfully possessed funds. You're not defending that position. It, uh, no, I'm not, Your Honor. In our, in our position at, at the district court level was we conceded that the funds were subject to forfeiture but requested a proportionality examination. The law was changed significantly into interim, where 69,000 in El Dorado came out by the Ninth Circuit, where they held the instrumentality test, and that test was used in reference to our briefs. I think a instrumentality, substantial connection, or some form of cutoff or threshold is necessary. But once that threshold is met, a, a standard of proportionality in criminal and persona manners needs to be uh, developed uh, as to what is grossly disproportionate. And your best guide to the development is what the district court did here. I think the district court uh, uh, did a a good job, Your Honor. I really do, because they evaluated all the factors, whether the money was lawfully obtained. So what what guide should an appellate court? This is one district judge of what the the guy has to say, $700. Justice Ginsburg, the guide that I would give, and uh, based upon uh, the Alexander Riemann and Busher, and I do not mean to be presumptuous, is looking at a totality of the circumstances, the gravity of the offense, whether the property was lawfully obtained and for a lawful purpose, the dollar volume of the loss, the existence of a benefit that was to be gained by the defendant, in this case there was none, and whether this was part of a criminal enterprise. I'm sure there are many more factors that this court could consider. I'm just naming a few. We've been enforcing customs laws in this country for over 200 years. Do you know of a single case in which the forfeiture of, of unduty goods has been declared uh, to be an excessive fine by any court. There has not been one single case, Your Honor, in reference to that. But That's what you're saying the Constitution has been requiring all these 200 years. That is correct, Your Honor, but after Austin and Alexander, where the court indicated that fines, uh, that forfeitures can be considered fines and therefore punishment does apply and the Eighth Amendment does apply, that has changed things. That has, in other words, there is now a review in reference to excessiveness concerning the Eighth Amendment. And an excessiveness implies an evaluation. What about in terms of the constitutional limit, a word like shocking? Shocking? Mm-hmm. Well, grossly disproportionate, Your Honor, to me, is as close to strict liability as one could get. I think it's a difficult burden for a defendant to meet uh, under the district court standards, I mean, in a district court. And... Uh, it's, it's a word, it's a concept that uh, I think district courts are familiar with. Shockingly, I'm not familiar, too familiar with that. I would like... Shock the conscience. Shock the conscience? I like that. And I, I think, Your Honor, that taking... No one is denying that, this gov- that the government has a strong remedial interest. But perhaps there is something that shocks the conscience when lawful money for a lawful purpose uh, is taken entirely without any concept of culpability. And I would respectfully indicate that... Well, except to this extent, the government, I think, concedes they must show 
that the defendant knew about the recording requirement and knew that it was illegal to take out more than X amount of dollars? Uh, no, Your Honor. It's a, it's a strict liability type of situation. Uh, you don't ha- you don't have to know if you don't if you go there and you have the I money. I thought the government maybe I'm wrong about this. I thought the government conceded that it must prove the defendant knew it was unlawful not to report that he was carrying in excess of ten thousand dollars. No, I don't believe that's the case, Your Honor. Uh, if you go out of the money, if you go out of the country without the money, I mean without declaring it for whatever reasons, ignorance of the law, not knowing it. There was no the- such thing here because the agent told him. Oh, he knew. You know, that- no, no question about it. He knew and he lied. But I, but I would ask the court to uh, seriously consider at this time developing a proportionality. Thank you, Mr. Platt. Thank the you, case Your Honor. Is submitted.